to Deep Learning Dialogues, the essential podcast for K-12 educators diving into the transformative world of generative AI. In each episode, we bring you insights from experts at the forefront of this innovative technology. We'll discuss the WCBSB AI guidelines and explore how Gen AI can be used in a human-centered way to foster equity, inclusion, and belonging in the classrooms. We're your hosts, Whitney McKinley and Katrina Gowett. Join us as we navigate the possibilities of Gen AI to enrich learning experiences while staying true to our vision. Don't forget to keep in touch and join in on the conversation with your questions and comments in our form located in the show notes. Now, let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody, to Deep Learning Dialogues. Uh, Let's get started today by acknowledging that the land on which we gather today is the land traditionally cared for by the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, and Chinatown peoples. We also acknowledge the enduring presence and deep traditional knowledge, laws, and philosophies of the Indigenous people with whom we share this land today. Media Smarts' office and also my home where I'm working are both based on uh, the traditional unceded and occupied lands of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. And with gratitude, we acknowledge the territory to reaffirm our commitment and responsibility to building positive, respectful processes and relationships with all First Nations, Inuit, Métis, and Indigenous peoples. Thanks so much. So uh, now that we're here and we're both starting our day with gratitude, tell us a little bit about yourself, Matthew. Uh, well, my name is Matthew Johnson, and I'm the Director of Education for Media Smarts, which is Canada's Centre for Digital Media Literacy. Um, Media Smarts is a registered charity. We've been in operation since 1996. Um, and our mission is to ensure that uh, everyone has the ability to use uh, and critically engage with media of all kinds. And of course, over the, the time that we've existed, over the almost 30 years that we've been in operation, the number of different kinds of media uh, has um, exploded and the role that media has played in our lives has, of course, um, grown tremendously uh, to the point where you know there are very few things in our lives that are not um, digitized or mediatized. So uh, I came to Media Smarts after a career as a secondary school teacher. Um, I taught in a number of different school boards in Ontario uh, for the longest time in the Upper Canada Board. And um, I also brought a background in uh, writing and theater and work in media as well. And I've now been with Media Smarts uh, for 16 years, supervising the development uh, mostly of our educational resources for parents and teachers, uh, our many, many lesson plans, tip sheets, guides, workshops, videos, educational games, and so on. And I'm also closely involved in uh, Young Canadians in a Wireless World, which is uh, our research project about youth and digital technology. Uh, it's the, we believe, the longest running project of its nature in the world. It's been running since 2001, and we just finished publishing our phase four results. Uh, and so this data, of course, is the backbone of everything we do, and all of our research and all of our resources are available 
on our website at mediasmarts.ca for free for anyone to use. And they're also available in French at habitomedia.ca. I've used Media Smarts for many years as an educator and have really valued the Canadian content and quality of those materials. I know you have a section of your website that is directly for parents, and I'm wondering if you have any resources or content that would help parents or guardians talk about generative AI with their child. Well, as with any part of kids' media lives, it should be part of an ongoing conversation that we have with them. It's one of the reasons why we recommend that parents start talking to kids about the media that they're using and consuming really as soon as they start accessing it. So even when kids are very young, you can start having conversations uh, at an appropriate level and you can look for opportunities to answer questions, to ask them questions, to bring in a little bit of insight uh, of some of the, the key ideas of digital media literacy. Um, so when you're in a store and your child asks you, you know, why is SpongeBob on that cereal box? You can tell them, well, it's because they know kids like SpongeBob and they're going to ask for the box with SpongeBob on it and introducing those ideas. Um, and when we make it a regular conversation, then when something new like generative AI or a new social network or something like that comes up, then it doesn't have to be a big deal. You can ask them just as part of your regular conversation. Um, what do you know about this? You may be surprised that in some cases they are less aware than you may think they are. Our research actually found that in general, young people feel that their parents and their teachers are more tech savvy than they are. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that uh, kids don't know that much about AI or algorithms in general, um, that they've probably heard about them. But if they have used them, it's largely been using them as a toy. So using something like uh, character AI, uh, which is um, a large language model that lets you have conversations with historical figures or real people or imagined ones, conversations obviously, simulations of them, uh, or Snapchat's My AI, which is essentially a, a chat bot that you can have conversations with or just playing around with generative image uh, AI like DALI. But in most cases, from what we know, kids are not making heavy use of them. And so they probably have as many questions as parents do. And so the questions and the conversation we want to have with them as parents is very much the ones that we have about other technologies. So first of all, the questions about what do you know about it? What might you want to do with it? Uh, who do you know that's already using it and how are they using it? And think about in particular um, the safety and privacy dimensions and the ethical dimensions. So we do know, for instance, that there are privacy concerns when using um, AIs, uh, particularly chatbots. Uh, in many cases, the the conversations that you have with these um, First of all, they may be used to train the AI itself because AIs generally are always improving themselves. But also, if you don't take a close look at the terms of service, you may find that anything that you enter into those conversations could be sold to third parties, to data brokers, 
It could be used for advertising purposes, and that depends on the platform. So you may want to look at the privacy policy. There's a really great uh, resource called TOSDR.org. That's short for Terms of Service Didn't Read, and it gives you great plain language summaries and a letter grade. Um, so looking at Snapchat's MyAI, for instance, um, that's actually powered by ChatGPT, is a specialized version of ChatGPT, but it's run through Snapchat. So you'll want to consider both of those terms of service because it goes through Chat, Snapchat, it goes to uh, ChatGPT. At the moment, ChatGPT has a pretty good privacy policy. I believe it rates a C, uh, last I checked on TOSDR.org. Uh, Snapchat, not surprisingly, does not rank as well. So you might steer your child towards, if they want to have conversations with a chatbot, steer them towards using the actual uh, ChatGPT, which does at the moment a better job of managing privacy. And you can just tell ChatGPT, act like you're my best friend. You can give them these prompts. And this is part of how we can explore, just like with a social network, if it's new, you want to explore it together, you want to look at the parent center and the safety center, you can explore these technologies together because particularly with AI, they probably don't know much more than you do. Um, in terms of the ethical dimensions, it's really very similar to the conversations that you might have with them about using sources like Wikipedia or other sources where it's able, it's possible to copy and paste. Um, they need to understand the roles that it's acceptable ethically uh, for AI to play in, for instance, doing schoolwork and what it isn't. They need to make sure you need to make sure they understand that they cannot represent uh, work that was done by the chatbot as their own, but that there may be ways in which you can use it ethically. So, for instance, giving it an essay and asking it to crit critique your essay. And of course, when we turn to image generation, um, then there are really serious ethical issues that we need to make sure. Uh, kids understand and it's very much the same conversation that we want to have with them about not sharing uh, embarrassing photos or videos, not sharing intimate photos or videos and the idea of consent. Um, so in the same way that kids need to know that when someone sends you a photo, any kind of photo, they still have the right to decide what happens to it after that. Nothing they do lets them makes them lose that right. In the same way, people have to consent to having you make a photorealistic image of them. It's a very different thing from, for instance, drawing someone or uh, doing a painting of them, although it's probably good ethical practice to ask in those cases too, if they're not a public figure. But when you're making a photorealistic image of someone, especially something that could be embarrassing or something that's intimate, Obviously, that's something that they need to consent to. They need to know about it. And so we need to make sure that kids don't have any kind of moral blind spot um, around deep fakes in the way that we know sometimes they do around uh, sharing sexts. I, I'm curious, I, I want to go back to the point that you just uh, addressed about um, using ChatGPT and using Snapchat as that um, back and forth conversation or the character AI. And there's something that's sticking with me is that um, to give ChatGPT the prompt of, you know, act like you're my friend. So um, when we're 
I think that there's some really interesting uh, beneficial that could happen with having those chats back and forth. But as a parent, I feel uh, a parent myself, I feel a little concerned about that, thinking that, you know, my child is going to feel that they can have a friend on this bot that isn't a real person and what's the the advice that this bot is giving and you know as a parent am i um i'm not able to look over my child's shoulder every minute even though sometimes i really feel like i want to um <laughs> what what's the implications there and and how is that going to potentially change or are we going to have to be aware of that as parents mm -hmm. and as educators it's one of the reasons why it's really important to talk to our kids about what it is they want from uh, any digital tool or media tool that they're using. Um, because when they turn to a chatbot, uh, now sometimes they may be just turning it to it for entertainment. Um, if they're turning to it for what we call parasocial needs, so if we're, they're turning to it in order to treat it as a friend, then it's important to understand do they want someone just to listen to them or are they actually seeking advice? Those are two very different things. And in most cases, I think people just want someone to listen because, you know, <laughs> we don't always have someone to listen to us. And of course, if we have, uh, there's always a give and take in relationships. And, uh, you know, if you're always unburdening your woes on a friend, then at a certain point, they're going to get irritated by it and you're going to know it. So having someone, having a sounding board, uh, having someone who will just listen, even if they're not necessarily a real person, um, can be really valuable. It's like writing in a diary or talking to a pet. But if they're seeking advice, then obviously that's a major concern. And so one of the things you do want to ensure is that they're aware of some of the counseling services that are available, things like Kids Help Phone, so that they know um, that if they ever really do need quality advice, um, there's somewhere they can go, where they can trust the advice that they're getting. They need to understand as well, and again, remember, kids are not necessarily more tech savvy than we are. They need to understand that the AI does a great simulation of being a real person, but it doesn't think like a real person. Um, it doesn't have, it cannot have any kind of, of morality. It cannot have any kind of compassion. It can only simulate these things and it simulates them based on patterns that it's identified in text. Now, the, the large models, things like ChatGPT, have uh, guardrails that have been put in place to limit uh, some of the harmful things, that, some of the harmful responses that could be made. But there are always limits to these guardrails. Um, that's just the nature of machine learning algorithms or AI, that there are always going to be circumstances that the, the designers and the people who put on the guardrails didn't imagine. So there's always a risk that there might be unsafe advice given um, or unhelpful advice. Um, and so making sure they understand that, that it really is just finding patterns and that it's not necessarily always going to be safe. One of the other things that's really a good practice too, uh, 
as well as, of course, making sure they know that they can come to you if they ever want to talk about anything media related or otherwise, is to ask them if there was something in your life that you needed to talk about, but for whatever reason you didn't feel you could come to me, who would you go to? Help them to identify the sources of support in their lives. And maybe you suggest people as well, people that you know, you know, teachers or counselors or other relatives, people who will seem um, safe to them uh, and that you are confident will be safe and reliable sources of, sources of advice. I think those, that's great advice. And I know um, at Waterloo Catholic, we really have been um, emphasizing that with our um, with our classrooms, our teachers and our students about those safe people that we can go to. So um, that kind of brings me to the next question about, um, you know, uh, deep fakes and how parents can navigate those challenges with their children, because those are, you know, in some cases they can be pretty uh, disconcerting, right? And so how, how do we manage that? Well, again, it is really a matter of, making sure that the conversations we've had in other contexts carry over, making sure that they understand that they apply here. So when we talk about deepfakes, um, there are a couple of different dimensions. So obviously there may be ethical dimensions around intellectual property, but that's not probably something that parents are going to need, feel the need to discuss. Uh, I mean, unless sometimes if your child is, you know, if you're their teen and they're starting to use generative AI to, you know, if they're designing video games or doing comics or something like that, um, then you might need to have that discussion. Um, that's some, an area where really there aren't any hard and fast rules at this point, and you just need to understand and make them understand that there are ethical questions that have to be asked about using AI art or other AI assets uh, in your own work. Um, but the, the two issues that probably are going to come up the most are uh, deep fakes that are being presented as real and that are being shared as real images and videos in a news or political context, and of course, sexual pornographic intimate uh, deep fakes. But in both cases, really, it is an extension of of the approach that we're already recommending and the conversations that we're already uh, suggesting parents have. So when it comes to things in news or politics, they really are a great example of how you don't want to start anytime you're verifying something, anytime you're gonna share something, anytime you wanna know whether something is true or not, you don't start by taking a close critical look at the thing itself. You start by doing what's called lateral reading, by looking at what other sources say about it, by what external evidence you can find about whether or not it is reliable. So with an image or a video, we can talk about its provenance. Can you find out where it came from? Can you trace it to a source that is legitimate? Um, so if it's an image, from, you know, that's coming from a disaster area, or if it's an image of a politician saying something embarrassing or something like that, find out where it came from originally, see if, did it come from a wire service? Did it come from a newspaper? Did it come from a TV news channel? 
Is it something that either you already know is reliable or that a little bit of research, doing a Google search or checking Wikipedia can tell you is reliable? There are also great tools like reverse image searches. Um, you can do it directly in Google. You can also do uh, use a tool called tineye.com, which I like particularly because you can sort the results by uh, age. So you can find out what the earliest version of an image was. Um, and so if you see something that is supposed to have happened uh, you know, a week ago, but the first ver image of it appeared today, or if it's said to have been shown on a news program, but you can't find any record of it there, then you know to be skeptical. So really it is these, these lateral reading approaches that we teach in our Break the Fake program, the four quick steps to verify whether something is worth your attention. And of course, that's not necessarily the end of your, your journey in critically engaging with something. You're really finding out whether it's worth your attention. And of course, if something is a deep fake, then it's not. Um, and then you can decide what you're going to do about it, whether it makes sense for you to point that out if you've identified that it is a deep fake or if you've identified that it is at least not, that there's a, a not reason to believe it yet. Um, when it comes to you know, pornographic or intimate or embarrassing deep fakes, particularly of you know of people that you know, but of celebrities as well, that's primarily an ethical issue about obviously not sharing them and understanding again that uh, the right to give or withhold consent extends to how you're portrayed in that context, um, that it's not a victimless crime, even though the person isn't involved, even though there are no real people involved in the creation of it, it is still harmful to them. It is still obviously humiliating. It can be harmful to their reputation. Um, and so we really do need to stress, it is not okay to make these things. It is not okay to share these things. And you know, if you find out that this something of this nature has been made of someone you know, you should tell them and you should also tell someone who can help because there are ways that these can be taken down, particularly um, if the person is under 18. So at the moment under Canadian law, it's unclear whether or not a deep fake of an adult um, is criminal. That's, there are probably actions that could be taken under civil law um, depending on the province that you're in. But it, at the moment, it doesn't seem as though uh, that's criminal. There's been some talk from the federal government about amending the criminal code to clarify that because the last time it was amended, these basically didn't exist. But certainly if um, you're under 18, if the subject is under 18, even if Again, in a deep fake, they weren't involved in making it. It is child pornography, and it can a judge can order it taken down. It makes me think a lot about um, here at Waterloo Catholic. We focus on our Catholic graduate expectations, which uh, parallel to the ministry's transferable skills. So, as these 
um, as generative AI and all of these things, images, whatever it may be, are being creative, those skills of critical thinking, problem solving, uh, self-directed learning, digital literacy, all of those skills that we're saying that students need to have in order to function in society apply to what we're seeing happening and being put out with generative AI and all of these pieces. I, I think it's so important for our parents to know and understand that this is something that they can help support at home too. Um, so when it comes to critical thinking skills, I, I think we've talked a lot about how parents can help to to build those skills in their student or in their children, have those conversations. Uh, is there anything else that you want to add about critical thinking or even maybe Media Smart, some of the resources that are there that can help our parents out? Sure. Uh, so we are developing a number of resources that deal specifically uh, with this topic. Um, we're having a, uh, we do have a workshop on uh, machine learning and AI uh, that's available on our YouTube channel and we have a number of resources that we have coming up probably in the fall. Um, you know, when it comes to critical thinking, probably the most important uh, aspect of it to keep in mind is that critical thinking is as much about questioning ourselves as questioning uh, things that we see or other people's ideas. Because that's one of the reasons why deepfakes are so powerful as a source of mis- and disinformation. It's because with them, you can have tailor-made something that will reinforce confirmation bias, images that you want to see. So if there's a politician that you really dislike, someone else who really dislikes that politician can make the perfect image of them. Um, and we saw that. We saw that uh, where it was actually a disinformation researcher who was demonstrating uh, the, the harm that deepfakes could do. Um, he made the famous image of the Pope in the puffer coat, but what he also made were a number of images of former President Trump being arrested. And these were, even though you know, a moment of thought would show you uh, that you would have heard about this through some other source. These were very widely shared because they were very powerfully what some people wanted to see. Um, and so going into any time when you're considering uh, uh, the, the veracity, the truthfulness of something, when you're about to share something, even before you start investigating it. So even if you're going in with a skeptical frame of mind, but before you start investigating something, you need to ask yourself three questions. The first is, what do I already know or believe about this? The second is, why do I want to believe or to debunk this? And the third one is, what evidence would make me change my mind? And it really is that third question that's so important because you need to have a standard of evidence ahead of time. Otherwise, you're really likely to fall prey to confirmation bias to debunk something because you don't want it to be true or to believe it because you do. I love those questions. I want to make a poster of them and put them up in... <laughs> You know, every room. I think that's a really great uh, way to frame our thinking around it. So we're wondering about the influx of Gen AI and how that's really impacting media smarts um, right now. 
obviously it's affecting a lot of the different things we do. Um, and so we are integrating it really across our resources. Um, we are bringing it into our privacy resources because as I said, um, AI and you know, machine learning algorithms more generally have tremendous implications for privacy, uh, partly because of those parasocial relationships um, that we were talking about earlier. You are often prompted uh, to disclose more, to say more personal things than you might otherwise say. And of course, those that can be valuable data in the short term for things like ad targeting, but also there is the issue of the algorithmic shadow, the idea that because of the way machine learning algorithms work, your actions now, the data that's collected about you now, may have an impact on you years or decades into the future. And machine learning algorithms, by their definition, are not transparent. Even the people who make them don't necessarily know how they come to a decision. And so you could find yourself in 10 years, you know, getting, uh, paying higher rates on your insurance or being denied a mortgage. And it could be because you had a chat with a chatbot about how much you like skateboarding when you were 15. But at the moment, there's no way to ever find out that that's true. So we're really integrating that into privacy and, and identifying ways that we can limit the impact of those uh, while still obviously empowering youth to make use of these technologies. Because if there's one thing that we've learned over 30 years is that we can't close our eyes and hope that a technology is going to go away. Um, that doesn't mean we have to accept it exactly the way that the tech companies present it to us. It doesn't mean that we can't push for changes in how they do business. That's a really vital part of digital media literacy is the, the civic advocacy, the civic engagement aspect, but the technology itself is, is not going to go anywhere. Obviously, we're integrating it into our authentication and verification material. I've already talked about that at length. We're integrating it into our material on ethics, our material on sexting, um, and doing more, more information about the the, the technology itself, because one of the most basic aspects of digital media literacy is what we call reading media, understanding how a media form communicates um, and understanding how media tools work. Um, and traditionally, of course, that's been fairly straightforward, so it doesn't take that long, for instance, to, to explain and to learn how camera angles work to communicate different things. And even with traditional forms of digital media, or what we're now calling traditional digital media, it's not that hard to look at a social network, to look at Snapchat, for instance, and identify the ways that its design influences how you use it as well as how it communicates meaning but again with ai because it is uh, it, it is a black box in many ways and so it can be much harder to analyze it to teach people how to read it as a media form and how to analyze it as a tool so that is probably the area where we're doing the most um, original work rather than integrating it into other topics. 
So we're going to have you um, open up the black box <laughs> and uh, use your prowess to look into the future. Um, and we're curious, based on all of the experience that you have, what emerging trends in generative AI do you foresee having the most impact on education in the future? Well, I think in education, there's no question that large language models, the text AIs, are probably going to have um, a big impact. That really we are, as I said earlier, we're kind of in the place where we were 15, 20 years ago with uh, Wikipedia and the open web, where we have suddenly um, a range of, of ethical concerns, um, but also practical concerns as well. Um, because we have here, as we did with Wikipedia and with search engines, we have a potentially very powerful tool. And there is uh, the instinct, I think, in many cases to just keep it out of the classroom, uh, to not want to deal with the challenges that it brings. Um, but we've seen how that has failed as an approach and has, I think, really backfired in many ways when it comes to things like Wikipedia, where Wikipedia now is in many ways central to the lateral reading approach because it's um, really one of the best places to get the consensus on a topic. Obviously, it's not, not where you're going to want to go uh, if you really want to learn in depth about a topic, but to find out things like is this person real or is such and such a newspaper legitimate or to compare, for instance, which is the more reliable source, the Washington Post or the Washington Times? Well, Wikipedia is going to get you that information uh, much more quickly than any other source, much more neutrally. Um, and it is it's become about as reliable as any uh, any other encyclopedia out there. Um, and really has become uh, a success story of online civic engagement because it, the reason it got better was because the people who use it uh, wanted it to be better and made it better. So I think with large language models, we're in a similar situation uh, as we were where, and there is of course significant concern and an appropriate concern about the ethical uh, dimensions. But I really don't think, having been a classroom teacher and having dealt with uh, old school plagiarism, um, I think that a lot of the things that we've developed over the last 20 years, a lot of the ways of not just detecting plagiarism, but preventing it um, are going to apply. Um, and I think that there are a lot of opportunities to bring large language models in to the class in helpful, meaningful ways. Um, and because there are often going to be things where we feel it's appropriate to automate something if it's not being graded, if it's not the subject that's being taught. And so bringing it into things like business classes, uh, bringing it into things like English as a second language classes, um, you know, there are a lot of very specific forms of writing that don't involve necessarily creativity um, that where large language models can be a huge boon. So writing a cover letter, writing a, you know, a letter where you're, uh, you know, 
uh, writing to a municipal government or something like that. Um, things where there are very specific forms where uh, having something that is essentially a form of, of autocorrect, but can autocorrect an entire letter for you, um, can be really valuable, but we have to learn how to use these tools appropriately. We have to learn to use them ethically. Um, but I think we're going to see image and increasingly video generation uh, being brought into classes as well. Um, I think along with the, the hardware that's now available, um, I think there are great opportunities to bring uh, more media making into digital media literacy and across the curriculum um, because you know we're real advocates for using media making as uh, a way of learning, as a form of assessment. Um, but one of the limitations has always been that people don't necessarily feel uh, it's a level playing field, that if someone is sort of maybe naturally talented or already has uh, training in, you know, in art, in music, in whatever, um, it can seem, even with if the teacher is as objective as they possibly can, you know, when you have a comics assignment uh, where one has really beautiful art and one of them is stick figures, and it's not an art class, so you're not supposed to be grading the art. It's very difficult, though, not to take that into consideration. I mean, we teachers are human, just like anybody else. And so this kind of technology can be a great way of leveling the playing field. And I really do see it making it easier and more practical um, to bring media production in. And of course, it's a lot faster, too. Thank you so much for this conversation, Matthew. It was truly terrific. Um, I feel like I've learned so much more about generative AI and the ways that Media Smarts can support both educators and parents. Um, a really valuable conversation that I think our um, stakeholders at Waterloo Catholic will really appreciate. Yeah, as a parent, I feel more empowered than I did before this conversation. <laughs> so thank you very much, Matthew. We really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Learning Dialogues. Next episode, we will dive into the transformative potential of deep learning and generative AI in education. Our guest, Max Drummy from New Pedagogies for Deep Learning, sheds light on the profound ways these technologies are reshaping learning and empowering students to tackle global challenges. Until next time, keep inspiring, keep innovating, and let's navigate the future of education together.